All right. I know that uh, from time to time I, I like to ask you weird questions, and I've asked you a few strange questions the last month or so. Uh, I think um, some weeks ago I asked you what was your favorite book title of a book in the Bible. Now, it's an odd question, but I did have a point. Does anybody remember what my point was? Anybody remember what my favorite book title of a book in the Bible was? Pardon me? Acts. I mean, it's perfect, right? Jesus is revealed in the Gospel. What do the disciples do? They act. They act. I just think it's perfect. Uh, I asked you, I think it was last week, I asked you uh, what your favorite attribute of God is. Does anybody remember what my favorite attribute of God, at least was last Sunday, it ch tends to change, but does anybody remember? Mystery. The mystery of God, an attribute that is not often talked about or discussed, uh, but the mystery of God. So this week I was thinking about one of my favorite words in the Bible. And of course I thought I would ask you, if you have a favorite, I know it's a weird question, I know it's almost probably impossible to answer, but do you have a a favorite word of Scripture. Pardon me? No, I didn't. I'm sorry. Did you say luck? No, I didn't. I said luck. <laughs> okay, we'll talk. We'll talk. It's okay. It's not a problem. Uh, I know it's a weird question. You've probably never been asked this question. Um, but when I read the text this week, when I began to study the text, there was a biblical word that came into my mind, and it wouldn't leave, it wouldn't leave my mind. And uh, I thought, well, that's what the Lord, how the Lord wants me to introduce the text. The word only appears four times in the New American Standard English translation of the Bible, which is the most literal uh, English translation from the original languages. The word appears, it's three different Hebrew words in the Old Testament, and it's one Greek word in the New Testament. Three times, of, three times out of the four, this word is, is used in relation to God. It gives us, I believe, a deep and profound insight into who God is and into how God operates. Um, I think it aptly describes the core inclination of God. And this characteristic is clearly evident, in my view, in the created order and also in redemption. Anybody want to guess what the word is? It would be impossible for you to guess. Um, the word is lavish. You know this word? Only four times in the Bible. Let me read it to you from uh, maybe the most uh, well-known verse. Ephesians 1, 7 and 8, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our sins according to the riches of His grace which He lavished upon us. Lavish means, I looked it up for your benefit, uh, to, give, to give with liberality or abundance, to be characterized by extravagance, to expend tirelessly. I think this is an apt description of the biblical God. I looked up some synonyms. Um, God gives profusely. He gives exuberantly. He gives grandly. He gives sumptuously. And I, I always love to throw this in. I think He's an omnipotent giver. This is a phrase that I've loved to use over the years. I, God is an omnipotent giver. You can't stop God from giving. It's His nature. It's what He does. 
and He gives lavishly. This aspect of God's nature, it's splashed all over the pages of Scripture. Of course, we see it in the beginning in the garden. What did God give to Adam and Eve? Everything. Everything north, south, east, and west of the tree was theirs. He gave them every good thing. He lavished every good thing upon them. They had one prohibition. And of course, we know how that story went. God's lavish nature, I think it's seen in the created order. I love how David writes about this. Psalm 145.16, David says, God has opened His hand and He satisfies the desire of every living thing. God, we see His lavish temperament in how He has designed man. Psalm 139.14, David says, I give thanks to Thee, for I am... Does anybody know? I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Beloved, if you don't know that you're fearfully and wonderfully made, um, you've been listening to the world's propaganda. <laughs> because we are. So, I know something about you and me and it's not good. I'm going to break it to you tonight. I know that you're guilty, just like I am, of almost always taking everything God has given you for granted. Am I right? I know we have those times when we're keenly aware of every blessing. Well, we can't, we, we can't enumerate them. We can't count them. You know, if you're having a hard day, sit down and begin to enumerate the goodness of God in your life. But don't we almost always take them for granted? Um, when was the last time you thanked God for the ability to think? Some of you probably have never thanked God that you can think that you can reason, that you can dream, that you can imagine, that you can recognize beauty and love it and drink it in. Some of you probably never thanked God for that. When was the last time you thanked God for the ability to, to know someone, to love someone, to be in a relationship with someone, to, to, to hope and, and to, to desire? When was the last time you thanked God for, for those capacities? When was the last time... You thanked God for the ability to see, the ability to hear, the ability to smell and touch and taste. When was the last time you thanked God for your taste buds? How many of you have never thanked God for your taste buds? Come on, let's own, let's own up to it. Okay, we've got, some, we've got some honest people. How awesome are taste buds? I mean, God could have fed us with food, one that didn't taste good. Or if it tasted good, He didn't have to give us taste buds. But he did. I mean, it, to me, it's just one of the, you know, some of the minutiae of the lavishness of God in our lives. Lastly, and most significantly, God has, lavished, has been lavish in His redemption of His people. There are many ways I could talk about this, but I think I'll just quote the Apostle Paul. Romans 8.32, John Piper's favorite verse. John Piper's a well-known pastor in the States. John Piper's favorite verse. Romans 8.32, God who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him freely give us all things? He is a lavish God. 
Beloved, all things are ours. All things are ours. One of my favorite verses in the Bible that, that highlight this point, Luke 12, 32, Jesus says, Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has chosen gladly to give you every good thing. He actually says the kingdom there, but we know that that encompasses every good thing. I love to preach Luke 12, and when I preach Luke 12, I always use the Hubble telescope as my illustration on that verse. Because the Hubble telescope, it can look out 11 trillion, no, it's 11 billion, yes, it's 11 billion times 6 trillion, 11 billion light years. Yes, I finally got it. This guy knows, and this guy probably knows. Um, 11 billion light years, which is 6 trillion miles per light year, it's ours. Go look at the Hubble telescope photographs. God has given it to us. It's all ours. Everything is ours. Every good thing, beloved, is ours. R.C. Sproul is a well-known theologian in the States. He likes to say that he's fond of saying this. God has taken the believer from dust to glory. I love it. From dust to glory. But I like to amplify on it. I like to say that God has taken us from nothing. Go before the dust. What were we before the dust? We were nothing. So I'm just going one step back from Sproul. From dust to sons. Think about it. From, from nothing to sons. That's what God has lavished upon His people. From nothing, from uh, non-existence to the sons of God, the sons and daughters of God. Think about it. Not only that, from enemies to co-heirs. Think about it. We were the enemies of God, Romans chapter 5. We were the enemies of God. And now we are co-heirs with Jesus. Think about it. God has lavished His goodness upon us. He has dealt lavishly with us. And uh, I know you thought you, know, you had this behind you, but I couldn't help but, but thinking about 1 Peter as I was beginning to read 2 Peter, because you remember how Peter introduced 1 Peter. He was talking about how lavish God had been in our salvation. Do you remember? So you're going to have to hear it one more time. In 1 Peter chapter 1, in the first nine verses, God says, I've chosen you. I've chosen you. God says, I've redeemed you with My blood. God says, I've sanctified you with My Spirit. God says, I've caused you to be born again. God says, I've prepared an imperishable inheritance for you. I'm protecting you with My omnipotent power. I'm perfecting your faith in the trial. And I am saving your soul. This is how Peter begins 1 Peter. And it's similar in 2 Peter. Again, as I, as I began to read and study the text, I saw some similarities in Peter's second letter to the church. Just, just so I can get it out of the way, I just want to say that Peter, Simon Barjona, Peter the fisherman from Galilee, Peter who walked with Jesus, this is the Peter who wrote this book. There's been some minor controversy about this. But among sound biblical scholars, 
there is no controversy. Peter, he may have dictated it. Someone else may have written it for him. But Peter is the author. I just want to get that off the table. Peter was minding his own business one day. You remember the account in the Gospels? He was just fishing. He had a bad day fishing. You remember? He didn't catch anything. He, he, he was just, he had a bad day. And God walked into his life. This happens all the time in the Bible, right? <laughs> God just shows up. Abraham. Uh, it happened to Abraham, Moses, Gideon, Matthew, Paul, the woman at the well. It happened to me when I was 28 years old. I was sitting in church and bam. Cool stuff happens at church. You know? I got saved in church. Although I'd been a professed Christian for 20 years, I got saved when I was 28. If you're a Christian tonight, it's happened to you. God just showed up one day. I love how John Piper says it. He said, God comes in the midst of real life for the least likely. Don't you love that? <laughs> he comes for us. He comes for us. And that's what happened to Peter. You know, he, he hadn't caught any fish and Jesus said, well, just cast one more time. And Peter was skeptical. But he did it. And his nets begin to break and the boats begin to sink and Peter immediately recognized the deity of Jesus and he worshipped Jesus. And Jesus said, come and go with me. And the text says that Peter left everything and he went with Jesus. That's how it is for Christians, right? We're not all called to leave a fishing business, but we're all called to stop loving that fishing business to stop treasuring that fishing business, to start get, stop giving our heart and soul to that fishing business, insert your own career or plans there. Because our affections move from whatever worldly thing we've placed them on. When we meet Jesus, our affections move off that and they move on to Jesus. And if He asks us to go, we go! We go! We may struggle with it, but we go. We wrestle with it. We pray through it. If He calls us to go, we go. Peter writes, you heard me read the text. Peter says, I am a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ to those who have received a faith of the same kind as yours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of of God and of Jesus our Lord. Jesus refers, pardon me, Peter refers to himself as does Paul and James and Jude and others as a bond servant of Christ. You know what a bond servant is? It's a free will slave. If you go to the Greek lexicon, you look up this word, this is what you read. One who gives himself to another's will. Have you done that, beloved? This is the essence of Christianity. One who gives his will to another. He subjects his will to his Lord. That's why, you know, the word Lord is used so many times in the New Testament. It's about, oh, Jesus is Lord. He's Lord, beloved. The other thing the lexicon says is, uh, giving your devotion to another to the disregard of your own interests. 
This is biblical Christianity. This is what it looks like when people met Jesus on the pages of Scripture. Of course many walked away from Him. Of course they did. But the ones who professed to know Him and love Him, they submitted their wills to Him. They submitted their lives to Him. It's what we see again on the pages of Scripture. When you read the New Testament closely, even just the third word uh, of Peter in this short epistle, he says, I'm a bond servant. When you, you know, when you just read the New Testament closely, you can see just how far what is called Christendom today has devolved from the original biblical language and intent. For instance, much of modern Christen, Christendom is, uh, and preaching and teaching has uh, become quite man-centered. You listen to your common sermon uh, on the internet, often the principal focus is it's about man's temporal needs or his wants or his desires or his hopes or his dreams or his happiness and how Jesus, who has become, quote-unquote, the divine facilitator, can help you acquire all of these temporal things. Jesus, by and large, has become the genie in the bottle or, for lack of a better word, we could say Santa Claus. He, this is how he's seen in many, many places. Beloved, Jesus is not the genie in the bottle. He's not, he did not come to serve us. Now, in his manhood, we know what he says in the Scripture, that he did come to serve. But in His deity, we serve Him. I say it from this pulpit all the time. It's not about you, right? You know this, right? It's not about you. It's never been about you. It's never going to be about you. It's about Christ. It's about Jesus. Everything's about Jesus. The amoeba in the blackest part of the sea under that rock or the asteroid on the far side of the cosmos it's about Jesus and you, your existence, your being, who you are, how God has endowed you. It's all about Jesus. So that's what Peter's saying here. Verse 1, he says, I belong to Him. I belong to Him. We sang it. I am His and He is mine. That's how it is for the Christian. Right? I am His. I'm always His. At the office, in the school, at the university, with my girlfriend or my boyfriend, uh, whatever inter entertainment I, I choose to see, I'm His. I'm His. I'm always His. I'm never not His. I tell people all the time when they come over here as internationals, you're never off the clock with God. You know, internationals tend to think, well, I'm off the clock with God. I'm in Europe. I'm just going to do whatever I want. I see it all the time. I'm off the clock with God. No! You're His here. Just like you're His in the States or Nigeria or the Philippines or China or Indonesia, you're, you're His there and you're His here. He's brought you here to do a thing, beloved. He's brought you here to do a thing. Which supersedes the apparent reason that you're here. <laughs> He's brought you here for His glory. Beloved, that's, that's, and that's what Peter's saying. I belong to him. I love how MacArthur talks about this. He's MacArthur, John MacArthur, famous preacher in the States. He has a book called entitled Slave. 
You know, don't read it unless you want to be convicted. But I have a copy. I'll loan it out to you. MacArthur says, The gospel is not simply an invitation to become Christ's associate. It is a mandate to become His slave. The Christian... uh, That's the end of the quote. and I, and I want to add that the Christian has never been, it's never been, Christianity's never been self serving, it's self forgetting. Do you understand that? And in much of Christendom today, it's, it's, it's framed in the context of it's all about you and how God can serve you and what God wants to do in your life and how God wants to please you and how God wants to profit you and how God wants to make you healthy and how God wants to do XYZ for you. Much of modern Christian preaching and teaching. Is, is framed like that. You don't ever see this in the Bible, beloved. You don't see this kind of teaching in the Bible. What you see in the Bible is, I'm the bondservant of Jesus! And Peter was all the way, right? Through prison and to the cross as he was martyred, as church tradition tells us, upside down. He means what he says. <laughs> he's, not, he's not just... Yeah, he means what he says. I am the bondservant of Jesus. While pseudo-Christianity spawns spectators, fans, and admirers of Jesus, biblical Christianity spawns lovers, followers, disciples, and slaves of Jesus. Then, then Peter says, yes, I'm his slave. And then he says, I am also his apostle. Now Peter is claiming the unique position that only a few men held. Right? They walked with Jesus during His ministry. They knew Jesus and they were His eyewitnesses to the world. I know that there are cults uh, and weird groups that they still use this title apostle, but it's not for anyone other than the men who walked with Jesus. There are no more apostles. Peter is an apostle. He walked with Jesus. So when you hear people using the title apostle, it's not correct in a biblical context. There are no more apostles. Peter says, I write this, I'm an apostle, and I write it with authority. This is the point in claiming his apostleship. And then Peter says, he's writing to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours. Just as he did in 1 Peter, in 2 Peter, as he begins the book, he's accentuating the divine side of redemption. We talked about this the last couple of three times we've been together. We have faith. I, Jim, I, I can say I have faith because I figured it out. I read it and I figured it out and I sorted it out and I logically came to the conclusion that I should have faith, right? Is that what the Bible teaches? What does the Bible teach? What did we talk about last week? Faith comes from God. It's the gift of God. Ephesians 2, 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not a result of works that no one should boast. Peter is accentuating this again. He accentuated it in 1 Peter. He says you're chosen. He's accentuating it here. You, you have a faith that you received. You know, you're not a Christian by your own initiative. You're a Christian because God has initiated it. God came into your life. God walked into your life. One day, this is how He always saves His people. Read your Bible. He shows up. <laughs> he shows up and calls us to Himself. 
I just want to say, if you have a question about 1 Peter, that's a heavy first couple of verses there in 1 Peter. If you have questions about that, please ask me. You can go out, and listen, you can go out on the podcast site and listen to those first few sermons in 1 Peter if you have questions about what God is communicating there. Peter says it's a faith that we have received. And we have received it from God. And did you notice Peter says it's the same kind of faith as ours. Now some people think that Peter, when he uses the word ours, he's talking about it's the same kind of faith as the apostles have. Some people think that he's talking about, when he uses the word ours, he's talking about the same kind of faith as a converted Jew might have. It doesn't really matter. It's all the same faith, right? It's all the same faith. Essentially, Peter is saying we, we get saving faith, we all get it the same way. God gives it to us. You remember how Peter came to faith? Does anybody remember? Uh, not simply when he, went to, when he, when he followed Jesus from, from fishing that day, but you remember when Jesus said, who do, who do men say that I am? And the disciples began to answer, and then Jesus said, who do you say that I am? And do you remember what Simon said? Remember what Peter said? You are the Christ, the Son of God. Do you remember what Jesus said? Blessed are you among men, Simon Barjona, because this has not been revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father who is in heaven. Beloved, this is how every believer becomes a believer. It's sovereign disclosure. It's sovereign disclosure. This is what God does. This is how He saves His people. This is how we come to faith. It is a faith that we have received. I know in most places, this emphasis is, is never really brought out in many, many places. But, you know, I would rather go sell used cars than stand up here and spin the text. I mean, I fear God too much to spin the text, to make it land easier on the ears of men. That's not my goal. Obviously, I want you to understand. <laughs> but it's like I said last week, if there's mystery, let there be mystery. If you don't understand, humble yourself under the Word of God. Don't try to reinterpret it or spin it or edit it. Jim, I don't understand all the fullness of what you're saying when you talk about God being sovereign in salvation. Well, join the line. Theologians have been writing about the, the, the tension between sovereignty and responsibility for 2,000 years now. Karen and I were talking about we went on a great walk the other day, but she walks too fast for me. <laughs> but we went on a great walk. You know, she's, she's one of these people. And, and uh, we were talking about this. And I said, you know, she said, there's, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of hard verses in Romans. And women, the women are going to study Romans. I, I said, just go to Isaiah 66 too. God says, I will look to this man, the man who was humble and contrite before me, and who, does anybody know, trembles at my word. Beloved, don't be fast and loose with the word of God. Don't let some denominational theologian tell you what it means when you can read the black letters on the page. The words mean what they mean. They mean what they mean, beloved. And if you struggle with it, that's okay. A lot of us struggle with it. But don't run from it and don't 
try to redefine it. God says, I look to the man who humbles himself and is contrite in spirit. Isaiah 66, 2, go look it up. And if he needs to, he trembles at my word. Okay. I just wanted to, to bring that out. Did you notice how Peter refers to Jesus at the end of verse 1 there? He calls Him our God and our Savior Jesus Christ. Our God and our Savior. This is just another many passages in the Bible that make the unequivocal statement that Jesus is God. I love how C.S. Lewis talks about this. He says it's patronizing, patronizing nonsense to say that Jesus is merely a great teacher. As some cults do, as some false world religions do, and as most skeptics do. The Bible has not left that option open. Jesus' own words have not left that option open. He's either God or He's a lunatic because He claimed to be God. You can't say He was a good moral teacher, simply a good moral teacher. No moral teacher, no good moral teacher would claim to be God. And that's clearly what He claimed to be. It's clearly what Scripture has to say about Him. So, don't let anyone ever get away with saying, oh, He was a great, He was a prophet, He was a good man, He was a great teacher. He can't be merely those things because He claimed to be God. So in verse 1, God's first lavish gift to us is the faith that He has given to us, the faith that we have received. In verse 2, God's next lavish gift flows from the first. It's God's grace and peace being multiplied to us. Every time Karen and I go to the beach, I sit there and I watch the waves come in. I've shared this with you before and I always think of grace. And, and I, I couldn't help but think of it when I read this text. Grace and peace are being multiplied to you. Well, just go sit at the beach and watch the waves come in. That's how much grace God has afforded to you. It never stops. Grace comes, it comes, it comes, it comes, it never stops. This is the grace of God. It's a perfect illustration of the grace of God. One day I tried to count the waves. And it, I, you know, it was dumb. I said, I'm going I'm to count them. <laughs> you know, I'm just going to count the waves. I'm going I'm to take 30 minutes and I'm going to count the waves. No. <laughs> grace and peace is multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. I want to say this. The word knowledge is used five times in the first eight verses of Peter. Peter's going to drive us to the Word of God. Because he, in chapter 2, all of chapter 2, he's refuting false teachers. Okay, And we know there are myriad false teachers in what is called Christendom today. And so he's going to spend the whole second chapter. So in the first chapter, he's driving us to the knowledge of God. How do we get the knowledge of God? Through the Word of God. It's God's revelation, right? So He's driving us to true knowledge. This. He's driving us to this. The true knowledge of God. He's driving us... Thank you for that. Alright. He's driving us to the true knowledge of God. And of course, the peace He's talking about here, you know, it's, uh, it's not kumbaya in the world. That's not what He's talking about. He's talking about your peace and my peace with God. It's the propitiation thing. Except someone tell me you're supposed to know what propitiation means. 
If you've been in this church for a while, you're supposed to know what propitiation means. What does it mean? Pardon me? Okay, that's good. The technical definition is the removal through what Jesus did, the payment of our sin, as Mary said. It's the removal of God's wrath from us. The removal of God's wrath from us. This is the technical theological definition. We have peace with God. We have peace with God because of Jesus Christ. Peter continues to reveal that God's lavish goodness in verses 3 and 4. Um, and there's this, the language here in 3 and 4, it's just, it, it, I don't know. This is why I got off on the, on the, on the lavish thing. But Seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us, by His own glory and excellence, for by these He has granted to us His precious and magnificent promises in order that by them you might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. These are, these are awesome words. These are worship-provoking words. God says, I've given you everything for life and godliness. God says, I've not left one thing undone. I've given you everything that you need for life and for godliness. This is done by, in, and through, did you notice? His divine power. It's done by His divine power. I couldn't help, I kind of went off on this one um, thinking about the power the power of God. To me, this is an awesome statement. So I thought I'd just give you a pinprick of perspective. A pinprick of perspective. You can quote me on that. A pinprick of perspective on the power of God. Now, we, 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 when we just think about the earth, right? We know there's just unquantifiable power at the core of the earth. We think about the magnetic uh, force. We think about gravitational force. We think about moving water and wind. We think about all this power that is oozing from the earth. Yes. Um, let's go back. There we go. No, one more. There you go. Now, the earth is certainly not the only planet in the solar system. Go ahead, Blessing. It's not even the largest planet in the solar system. Go ahead. Look how small the earth is to the sun. Now, what I'm trying to get you to, to grasp here and think about is the power of God. The power of God. Right? That's just the picture of the sun. Oh, guess what? Guess what? In this picture, Jupiter is one pixel and the earth is not even visible. You can barely see the sun. Go to the last one. Oh, look at this. Uh, our sun is one pixel compared... These are just stars in our galaxy, beloved. These are stars in our galaxy. Okay? And there are 400... The last, the last thing I read in, uh, in literature, and these guys may know more, the last number I read was 400 plus billion galaxies, okay? There are 400 plus billion galaxies. This is the deep space field of, of Hubble Telescope. 400 plus billion galaxies. So I want you to understand. I want you to understand. That's a pinprick of the power of God. I love how 
The prophet Habakkuk says it. The prophet Habakkuk says, the created order is the hiding of His power. And what is he saying there? He's saying that there's, there's more power hidden by the created order than you can see in the created order. Doesn't that blow your mind? That's our God. That's our Father. That's our Savior. And you're afraid? And I'm afraid to be a Christian out there? Beloved, natural fear wells up in all of us. But our God is omnipotent. <laughs> our God is God. And His power is unquantifiable. Jesus says, no one can snatch you from My Father's hand because of the power of God. Paul says, no created thing can separate you from the love of God because of the power of God. And it's what Peter said in 1 Peter 1.5. He says, we are protected by the power of God and you're afraid? You're afraid to do what God's called you to do? You're afraid to, to be a disciple? You're afraid to, to give that witness? Beloved, don't be afraid. You have all you need. You have all that you need. And notice the medium through which this power, uh, uh, everything you know, pertaining to life and godliness, the medium again here, it's through the true knowledge of God. Peter's driving uh, his readers and us to the incarnate Word and the written Word. Peter, this is what Peter's driving us to throughout this book. You remember what Jesus said? What's the definition of eternal life? What is it? What did Jesus say in John 17, 3? Pardon me? It's to know God. It's not to know about God. It's to know God. It's to know God. And this is, Peter's pushing us to this, to know God through knowing His Word, meeting Him in the Word, understanding Him in the Word, loving Him through the Word. This is where Peter is going to push us And did you notice as well that we are called by His own glory and excellence? That's the NAS. The ESV English Standard Version renders it like this. We are called to His own glory and excellence. Both prepositions, in my view, work perfectly. There, there are 25 sermons here, and I don't have time to fully develop this, but we are called by His glory and excellence, and we are called to His glory and excellence. Certainly, um, the salvation of man through the incarnation of God, His crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension, it's all about the glory of God. This great act of grace and mercy and compassion, it flows from the glory and excellence of God. And I want you to understand, is if you go read John 17 and think about it very long, you'll see that we're called to the glory. We're called to glory. So, by and to, both prepositions work just fine. So in verse 4, Peter says, By these, God has granted to us His precious and magnificent promises. By what? By these. By what? Verse 1, by His gift of faith. Verse 2, by His gift of grace. Verse 2, by His gift of knowledge. Verse 3, by His divine power. Verse 3, by His divine calling. Verse 3, by His divine glory. By these. By these, God has granted to us His precious and magnificent 
promises. Don't you love this word here? Magnificent. I, looked, uh, I went to the Greek lexicon to look at the Greek word translated magnificent, and one of the comments there was exceedingly great. God's promises to His people are, yes, magnificent. They are exceedingly great. Yeah, there's another 50 sermons here, and I, I wouldn't even begin to touch the surface of all the breathtaking promises that God has made to His people. But I just wanted to share a quote with you. Ten years ago, I was preparing a sermon on Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. And I read a quote and I've never forgotten it. It's by Donald Barnhouse. He's an he's a old Presbyterian minister in the States. And listen to what he says. In Romans 8, where the Lord, he's talking about us being co-heirs, right? We are children of God. We are adopted sons. We are co-heirs. He, he says this, We are being informed that everything that God the Father has given to the Lord Jesus Christ has been given to us also. If we read the Word of God to discover all that God has planned for Christ, we shall discover that we are included in them. Obviously, we do not share His deity, but we are co-heirs with Jesus. Beloved, I want you to hear that. These are magnificent promises. They are exceedingly great promises. Is it hard today? Hey, I know sometimes it's hard. But meditate on the magnificent promises God has made to you, beloved. It's why Peter's reminding us of our great salvation. It's why he did it in 1 Peter. It's why he's doing it in 2 Peter. Remember how awesome your salvation is, beloved. Don't let the world co-opt your thoughts. You're probably spending too much time in the media. You know, the media, we're bombarded all the time. We need to spend time in the Word of God. And don't you love this phrase, partakers of the divine nature? This blows my mind. You know, John Piper says, if you're understanding the Bible correctly, your mind will be blown. And it blows my mind. I'm a partaker of the divine nature? What's he referencing here? There are many things I could say about this, but principally I would say, he's talking about the, the born-again thing. He's talking about being begotten of God. He's talking about regeneration. He's talking about the Holy Spirit coming to take up residence in us, right? Beloved, if you read your Bibles, you understand that the Spirit of God's not only with us and for us, the Spirit of God is in us. We are partakers of the divine nature. You know, God freely gives to His people what no right-thinking man would ever ask for. Would you stand before God and say, hey, I want to be indwelt by the third member of the Trinity. Would you ever say that? No! No right-thinking person would ever say that. But God just freely gives it. And we have escaped corrupt, the corruption of this world. It doesn't mean that we are sinless. Certainly we are not. We still struggle with our old sin nature. As Paul clearly talks about in Romans chapter 7. But we are like Lazarus. We were dead. But Jesus has called us out. We were dead. But now we live. We still struggle with our sin nature. But we have escaped the corruption of the second death. Let me just close with, he, with Ephesians 2. Paul says this perfectly. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, 
even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus in order uh, that in the ages to come He might show the surpassing riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Beloved, this is like an artichoke or an onion. We're just going to keep peeling back the lavish goodness of God in our lives. For a billion eternities, we'll never get to the end of the lavish goodness of God in our lives. It's one thing that the Holy Spirit is telling us there. So 2 Peter begins a lot like 1 Peter, reminding us how awesome our God is, how awesome our salvation is. In chapter 2, he's going to warn us about false teachers. He's going to push us to the true knowledge that only the Bible can afford us. And he's doing all these things that you might be a bondservant of Jesus. So I'm going to ask you as I close. And I want, you, I want you to look into your life and look into your heart. Are you truly a bondservant of Jesus? Or as I say so often, have you been deceived by pseudo-Christianity? And are you merely a churchgoer? Or are you a bondservant? Beloved, this is biblical Christianity and Peter's going to be pushing us in this direction. I'm just going to end with Daniel 11.32 which I, I love. I've said it to you often. Peter wants us to know the Word of God and he wants us to know God through the Word of God. Daniel 11.32 says, the people that do know their God shall be... Does anybody want to end that for me or finish that for me? The people who do know their God shall what? Be strong. Be strong and do exploits. That's why He's left you on the planet. Right? To do exploits. To make much of Jesus. To be His slave. It's going to be a great study. I hope that you'll study along at home. That you'll be reading the text and thinking about the text and meditating on the text. Sending me questions uh, via email. It's going to be a great study. Let's pray together. Lord, what a privilege to be called Your bondservant. What a privilege. Lord, I pray that every soul here has made that transaction in their heart. Certainly none of us do it perfectly or even very well. But Lord, it's our heart's desire to be Your bondservant. To submit and subject our will to Your will. Lord, that's the kind of people we want to be. That's how we want to live. We want to make much of Jesus. We want to be strong. And we want to do exploits. So Father, help us as we go through this great book. Encourage us, strengthen us, embolden us. Help us think deeply about Your greatness and the greatness of our redemption. I pray, Father, that none here would be guilty of taking it for granted. Any! Lord, that we would not be guilty of taking any of Your lavish goodness for granted. That we would meditate deeply on it and we would rejoice in it. It would inform our thinking. It would inform our attitude every day. 
It would inform our relationships. It would inform how we do our job, how we do our studies. It would inform what we do in the neighborhood and certainly inform all that we do in the church. Have Your way with us, great God. Through the power of Your Spirit, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.